Now, this morning, uh, we are going to begin a new series. Hopefully, by now, you've received a letter that we sent out to you describing just a portion of it. Today's topic was just going to be too vast. When I began laying this out months and months ago, um, I looked at this particular week and thought, I just, Lord, I just don't know how I'm going to do it. And so I just kept thinking, Lord's going to show me how, it's going to reveal how we're going to get this morning done in terms of the sermon. And I just, there's just no way to do it. And the Lord reveals me, there's just no way to do it. And so we're going to divide some of this up throughout the series so you won't get a full introduction like we would normally do with the book. We're going to get some portions of introduction. There's some things in the passage that we just have to see. But all of this is tying into where we are in the life of our church. See, several years ago, over 15 years ago, God birthed a vision into the heart of the leaders of this church. And that was how can we best serve the community in which God has sovereignly placed us. Wildwood's had several locations throughout her history. Many of you remember the Chuck E. Cheese days, which we met at a Chuck E. Cheese. There's been locations throughout. God has always been sovereign over those locations. And what he has called his church to do, no matter where they are, whether it's on this continent or another one, no matter whether it's this year or whether it was 500 years ago, God, the, the vision and the mission is the same, to be faithful where God plants you. And we see that all throughout the scriptures. And we believe God has sovereignly placed us here. And so that means that we are to be faithful to minister to the needs of this particular community. Now, while we want to minister to all of Tallahassee, while we want to minister globally to other locations as well, our primary emphasis must come on this, the northeast side of Tallahassee. And so how do we do that? We began to talk with various people in the medical community, those in law enforcement, those in, on the judicial side of things. We talked to folks all over in education, and everyone came back and said, this side of town needs a community center. And I know some of us right away said, oh, yeah, wealthy Northeast needs a community center. No, that's what the community said. We need a community center up on the Northeast side of town. We said, okay, let's do that. See, the original vision was how do we as Wildwood Church get bigger and better? How do we grow more space for us? The vision turned. And in 2008, God made it abundantly clear to all of the leaders. It's not really about you, Wildwood. It's about how I'm going to use you to meet the needs of the community. And one of the ways I'm going to do this is through a community center. And so we began to rethink how do we, instead of building something bigger and better for us, build something that will bless the community? Now, don't be misled right now. Don't think that I'm just limiting this to something that's physical in nature. Building a building is easy. Raising money to build a building is relatively easy. Now, those of you that do this for a living, I know you just said, come on, preacher. When you, people get excited about building brick and mortar, et cetera, and, the, and the, the church has a long history since World War II of raising ridiculous amounts of money for brick and mortar in America. I'm not talking about just brick and mortar. I'm talking about how do we build something within us as a people that are living for something that is beyond us? How do we build a church, you ready? for a people who are not yet here? How do we build into us a mindset and a heart and a longing to minister to folks who don't want to be here? 
How do we develop a vision for a group of people who will be unleashed on Tallahassee and minister in such a way that we're trying to honor God and just bless you? That's what we're trying to do. See, this is what this series is going to be primarily about. We're going to be faithful to the text because it's right here. I'm not taking the text and ripping it off and trying to apply it to something that we want. Not All of us pastors have been guilty of having a great idea and then finding a passage for that idea. It's not what we're going to do. We're going to teach through the text. It's all right here. What is the book of Joshua primarily about? About the expansion of God's kingdom. That's what it's primarily about. That's what this community center is about. And we're going to talk about that throughout this series. We're going to be coming around to some small groups. We're going to be coming. We're going to find a way to get in front of you to talk about what this vision is that started 15 years ago, got put on hold with those beloved COVID years that we had, and is now picking back up and moving forward. So we can't wait to to get this information to you. Aristotle said this: "We make war that we may live in peace." We make war in the short term so that in the long run we may live in peace. Do I need to illustrate this? What would have happened in World War II had we not entered the war and took on the bully? Take any time you want in, in, in history, and there's always a bully that's going around trying to do something to a group, a group of people to enslave them. And so we try with patience. We try to endure. We try to be long-suffering, but eventually there comes a point in which you've got to punch the bully in the nose. Yes, I told my children that growing up. Be as patient as you can. Ask somebody to stop three times. Inform your teachers, other adults that are around. However, if this person continues and persists, after you telling them over and over again to stop, punch them in the nose. Unless it's a girl. (laughs) And if it's a girl, I'll spank you. All of us know this. There comes a time in which you have to stand up and fight. You have to stop oppression. I'm not talking about going out and picking fights. I'm talking about when someone just won't stop, somebody has to stop them. I'm grateful that we've lived in a country that has done this over and again. I am not saying that we are flawless as a country. not saying that. I'm saying I'm grateful that from time to time we've had to punch the bully in the nose. We make war that we may live in peace. This is what the book of Joshua is about. Now, on the immediate scale, this is going to be about the nation of Israel that is moving in. They have come out of slavery, and they're now moving into a land that was promised to them. And so they're going to be moving in. This is the story of how they occupied this land. But don't be, mis- uh, don't be misled. This is not ultimately about a nation moving into a place of, of land. This is ultimately about God's people occupying God's territory when the evil one has taken up residence. 
This is a promise that God gave to his people that I'm going to move you into this land. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be incredible resources. You're going to be so blessed when you're there. But you're going to have to go in and immediately start fighting. There's going to be battles that you have to engage in. I'm telling you, I'm going to do it. I'm going to win the war for you, but you're going to have to fight. So the story of Israel is this. You remember that they were made into a great nation. There's this guy named Joseph whom God raised up, and he put him in charge in, a, in, in Egypt. And while this place was uh, uh, persecuting the people um, uh, of God, I'm sorry, um, um, uh, raising the people up, and so then there's this famine that takes place. He raised them up and it saves, uh, saves a whole bunch of people um, through his uh, visions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, jo- Joseph was in great favor with uh, the Pharaoh. was in great uh, um, cahoots with him. And then the scripture tells us that Joseph dies. And then after he dies, what happens? The nation of Israel goes through a long period of time in which they are enslaved by this nation of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time. But remember, God had given a promise all the way back to this guy named Abraham. He said, I'm going to give you this land. And then even in there, in in Genesis 15, um, when, when he's laying this promise out for him, Remember, he tells them, but you're going to go through a period of time in which you're going to be enslaved. It happens just as God predicted that it was going to happen. And so these people are crying out to the Lord, and then God shows up one day, and there's this bush that is burning, but it was not being consumed. And so this dude named Moses, who was on the run, goes and talks to this bush, and God reveals himself to it. He says, I'm going to use you to take my people out. I have heard their cry, and I'm going to take them out into freedom. And Moses says, great, I'm ready to go. No, that's not what Moses says at all. Moses says, do you know that I've got all kinds of issues? I've got all kinds of problems. I mean, you may be the God of the universe, the God of Jacob and of Isaac. You may be that God, but I'm telling you, you would not be wise to choose me to advance your kingdom. I can't speak well. I get nervous when I'm in front of people. I don't like having difficult conversations with others. I would rather kill them in the process. Moses has excuses and God says, dead gummit, that's my interpretation. Moses, just move forward. Moses, do you really think that it's up to you to advance the kingdom? Do you really think that you somehow or another are going to mess this thing up so bad that I can't solve it? All right, I'll give you Aaron. You feeling any parallels in your own personal life yet? God advances his kingdom through his people. And you might be saying, you would choose me? I don't like difficult conversations, God. I'm not very good with other people, not very smart. There's a whole lot of other more qualified people. God says, do you really think you can mess this up? So much so that I won't fix it? Let me remind you, God would say, I sent my son to fix everything that you messed up.
who wrote the book of Joshua. While we don't know this uh, for certain, I think there's a high probability that Joshua himself wrote the overwhelming majority of the book in the same way that Moses wrote the overwhelming majority of the Pentateuch. We know that Moses didn't write all of the Pentateuch, and we know that Joshua didn't write all of the book of Joshua for this reason. There's a line at the end of the Pentateuch that says, Moses died and he was buried. I'm pretty sure Moses didn't write that. And Joshua later on tells us that Joshua dies and he was buried. I'm pretty sure Joshua didn't write that. So there's some other people that contributed to it, but Joshua is primarily the author of this book. He's the one that's telling the story. Who is receiving this? It is the people of God. It is the nation of Israel. Now, why was this book written? The book of Joshua is a divine call to courage by seeing God's faithfulness as he grows his kingdom through his people. Let me say that again. The reason that this book was written, in my opinion, I may be wrong on this, but this is my my opinion. It is a divine call to courage by seeing God's faithfulness as he grows his kingdom through his people. Now, it brings up the immediate question. How would we define God's kingdom? How do we know what God's kingdom is? is. I'm going to take a definition from a man that's a hero of mine. I've heard him use this definition on several occasions. I gave this to you way back when we went through um, uh, the Lord's Prayer in my first year here, which I know you all remembered. You memorized every one of those sermons that we preached in there. Here's the, the definition that comes from a man named Randy Pope. The kingdom of God is the reign of Christ in the king. I'm sorry, the reign of Christ the king in the lives of his kingdom people which grows extensively, that is broader, and intensively, that is deeper. I'm going to say it again. The kingdom of God is the reign of Christ the King in the lives of his kingdom people, which grows extensively, which is broader, and intensively, which is deeper. The kingdom of God is both about an individual and about a group. So as you continue in your own personal life to surrender more and more to the Lordship of Christ, you say, yes, Lord, over and over again to various areas of your life, that kingdom is growing inside of you. The reign of Christ, the King, is growing inside of you. And that's growing intensively. That's a deeper level. We all will keep growing throughout our lifetime. We will never get to the place where where we have no more room to grow in our intensive uh, life. um, submission to the, to the person of Christ. But the kingdom also grows extensively, it grows broader. And that happens when sinners repent. When people see the beauty of who Christ is, they fall on their knees, they surrender the controls their lives over, and they say, the intent of my heart is that you have all of me, every facet of my life, every area of my life. My marriage is yours. My job is yours. My school is yours. My, and you fill in the blank, is yours. That's the intention of the heart. So the kingdom grows intensively, individually. It grows extensively through the sharing of the gospel. God has called you to both. He's called me to both. He's called me to a daily surrender, and he's called me to view the world in the same way that he does. You know what my fear is right now for the church in America? My fear is is that we are looking at the world with far more disdain than we should. I think we are looking at a group of people who are being bullied by the evil one himself. 
And while everyone is 100% responsible for the decisions that we make, I am fearful there's a group of people that have no way out. And we hold the solution. And we get a chance to go to the world and say, don't, not, not tell them, hey, if you would just make the same decisions that I make, if you would just do the same things that I would, if your life would look like mine, you would be so much more happy. Instead, we get a chance to say, would you just look at Jesus? And yes, I realize that I'm in some ways still a mess, but I'm telling you, my life is on a track record that's moving in a better direction. And I'm just telling you, it's not me, it's Jesus. This is what the book of Joshua is about. A really bright dude named David Howard wrote this. In general, Joshua was written to provide an interpretive history of one slice of Israel's life as a people. More specifically, it interprets the period in which Israel entered and settled in the land, promised to Abraham and his descendants. Again and again, it shows God to be in control of the events of history, not only in dramatic miracles, but also in the consistent way he is given credit for all of Israel's victories. God's activity in all this was in order that he might give to Israel the land he had promised to Abraham and his descendants. Thus, the major purpose of the book of Joshua is to describe God's giving of the promised land of Canaan to his people Israel. Many of you know the name Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer called this a bridge book. He said it's a bridge between the promise of the land and the occupation of the land. The people were promised the land, but they had to go and take it. And this is the story of the people going and taking it. Now, as we make our way through this book, I want you to know we are going to deal with some of the issues that are going to pop up that some of my skeptic friends have asked me over the years. There is the ethical question of war that you're going to find in here. There are going to be times in which the scriptures describe things that are taking place that you say, ooh, I'm not sure I like that God. We're going to deal with that as we make our way through. We're going to deal with the ethical question of war in the scriptures when God is the one asking his people to initiate the war with the people. But the people um, needed to fight. Now, there's this generation of Joshua and Caleb, um, these two guys that are um, of this generation that were not, a, um, I'm going to say it this way, they were a part of the generation, but they were not of the generation in terms of its mindset. Do you remember the story when Moses is making his way out? So all, all this incredible things that happen. God does miracle after miracle after miracle, all these signs that he gives. Each one of these signs was a sign that was in direct opposition to the, the false Egyptian gods. And God's saying, I'm superior to each one of them. And he does this through blood and frogs and plague, all this stuff. So God brings them out of there. And then it really only should have taken a few weeks for them to get from point A to point B where God wanted them to be established in this land. But they didn't do it. Do you remember why? These spies were sent out by Moses. The spies were sent out. Listen, the spies were sent out to go spy out the land that God had already promised them that he was going to give them. I'm going to win this battle. I'm going to do this for you. You got to go and you got to fight the battle um, there, but I'm going to win the war. So the, the spies go out, the people who were used to living in slavery, who were used to obeying the commands of an oppressive leader, they are now freed from that. 
And, and, and the, the good king, the, the righteous king, uh, tells them, go. And so they spy out this land, and then they look at the enemy that they have to fight. And they say, oh, no. These guys, are, they're too big, they're too powerful, they're too strong. Joshua and Caleb are saying, but God told us that he would give it to us. No, they're just too big. But God said, no, they're just too huge. Have you seen how small we are in comparison to how large that they are? Have you seen how smart they are in comparison to how dumb we are? Can you see how skilled they are in comparison to how unskilled we are? Can you see how warrior-like they are in comparison to how slave-like we are? See, the focus was always on them. If you continue to look inward into your own self, you're going to get depressed. Joshua and Caleb had a habit of doing this. What are you capable of? And if you call me to go this direction, I'm going to choose by faith, in spite of my fear, to move forward. Courage from within gives way to fear. Courage that gets mustered up from within. I, I can do this. I, I wanna, I'm not going to illustrate this to death. I just want to give you one simple illustration. If you own your own company or you're a manager, et cetera, and you've just been recently promoted to that and you don't particularly enjoy conflict, how much are you going to look forward to the times in which you have to give all of their employees how they've done this year. So you got a couple of choices. You can say, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. I think I can, I think I can. I'm the train that's going up the hill. I think I can, I can do it, I can do it. Courage that gets mustered up only from within, I promise you, is going to eventually give way to fear. You are not going to have that difficult conversation by looking within and saying, I can do it. But if you look up and you see the the person through the perspective of God's lens. And you see, wait a minute, this is somebody that I care about, that if I'm going to share some difficult things with them, it's actually in their best interest for the long haul. So I want to share this in, in the most direct way that I can, but also the most compassionate way that I can, because they're made in the image of God, and I want them to grow and develop. Courage from within is eventually going to give way to fear. Courage from above is actually going to lead to faith. Now, again, what is faith? Is faith the complete and total absence of fear? No. Faith is never described like that in the scriptures. Faith is always described as fear that I'm moving forward of in spite of whatever that fear may be. Whatever's in front of me, I'm afraid. But I'm going to move forward anyway because I'm going to choose to take God at his word. I'm going to trust that he is bigger than whatever this problem is that's in front of me. You got a wayward child right now? A child that's facing something that is just bigger than them? Mustering up all kind of courage from within to try to do everything that's necessary to save your child isn't going to work. The only thing that's going to get you through this is consistently looking up. You say, Lord, what do you want me to do in light of where we are right now? I don't have the wisdom. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know when to punish. I don't know when to, to extend um, unusual grace. 
You got financial troubles right now? No way that you can see how it is you're going to generate more income and yet the bills keep piling up in front of you? Mustering up the courage from within, saying that you're going to figure something out is going to give way to fear. Looking up, praying, being patient, and then doing whatever it is that God asks you to do, no matter how ridiculous it may seem, that's going to lead to faith. Courage from within is saying, I got this. Courage from above is saying, God's got this. Now, which one would you rather have in control? With whatever problem is in front of you, would you rather it be you making your way through it? Or would you rather it be God making way through it? If you have their Bibles, stand with me in honor of God's word. If you're not physically able to stand, don't sweat it. You can read along just reading the first nine verses of Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, the people of Israel. In every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, the great sea, toward uh, the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it for the, to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You may be seated. I want to take the language of a wonderful Bible teacher that has put this uh, uh, outline together. So this wording of this outline is not mine. I'm just borrowing it from him. But verses one through two, there is an encouragement from God's commission. God is commissioning Joshua. Now let the, the commissioning uh, let, let, let sit like it would have to him though. Moses, my servant, the one who led all of these people out of the land of slavery is dead. Now, it's not as simple as just here's a leader of a large number of people who is stepping aside, and now we got to name a successor. Keep in mind, this is a guy who had a relationship with God that no one else had. Nobody else went to a tent, went inside of a tent, met face to face with God as a friend meets with a friend, came out of that tent with his face glowing so much 
that they had to put a veil on it so that other people wouldn't get sunburned in the process. So don't just think of it as in, this is a leader. This is Bobby Bowden, and now we got to find whoever the successor is after Bobby Bowden. Would you have wanted to be the coach that came after him? One of the greatest, most successful coaches in the history of the game able to do at Florida State what I don't think anybody else could have done. Finished that many times in a row in the top five with limited resources. That would be bad enough. But would you want to replace Bobby Bowden being the spiritual man that he is? We have some folks in our church that uh, coached with Bobby Bowden for several years. And so I went with this gentleman one time to, uh, to FSU's campus. And so he took me around. And so here's this coach and this coach. And I'm like a sports fanatic. And so I'm a guy that grew up watching these dudes. And so I'm trying to keep it cool on the outside. You know, as I'm meeting a lot of these just studs, coaches and former players. I'm like, oh, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Meanwhile, I'm about to wet my pants in the process. Seeing them. And, and, and this is what blew me away. It was person after person that when I got introduced as this guy's pastor, and he said, this is my new pastor. And it was person after, oh, you're a pastor. Let me tell you, it was this spot right over here where Bobby Bowden shared the gospel with me for the first time. It was over here in which Bobby Bowden shared the good news. And that's when I dropped to my knees and came to faith. And it was this person saying, it's the first time right here that Bobby Bowden prayed for me. It was the first time that I prayed a real prayer in my life. It's over here. And I'm going, did this guy ever coach? Or was he just a pastor? Would you want to replace that? I have lived the bulk of my adult life in the shadows of my father's faith. Not because he put it there. Because I am, am convinced I can never live up to his level of spirituality. He doesn't want that. There are heroes of the faith that I look up and I say, I will never attain that kind of spirit. See, this is what was going on with Joshua. It wasn't just that he had to lead literally millions of people. It was that he knew that the person who was before him was a man who flat out loved God, served God, and was used mightily by God like no one else at that point in the history of the world. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you. Would you be afraid? <laughs> the commission is you are the one, and God is the one coming to him personally, giving him this word saying, you're the man that I'm choosing. Nobody would have run for office in this. Verses 3 through 5 give us encouragement from God's promises. Look at what he says. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, just as I promised Moses. And then he tells them the land that's there. Now, one of these days in the weeks to come, you're going to see it. We're going to find a way to put it up on that screen. But you're going to see the original boundaries that God had set out for the nation of Israel and to find out what it is that they have today. It's absurd. It's a tiny sliver of what God had promised to them originally. But he's reminding Joshua, I'm giving you all of this land. I promised it 
to Moses. And if I promised it to Moses, I, I mean, I'm sorry, if I promised it to Abraham and to Moses, do you not think that I'm going to be faithful now with you? So God is the one who is giving courage to Joshua through his commission and through his promises that he reminds him. But look at verse 6. So be strong and courageous. How can I be strong and courageous? Again, am I going to be strong and courageous by mustering up the strength to be strong and courageous? Am I going to make myself strong? Am I going to make myself courageous? Am I going to make myself move forward? No, it comes from what is previous to that in verse 5. Just as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. You know, Jesus said the same thing, right? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Do you ever feel like God leaves you, forsakes you? If you don't, you're superhuman. We all feel it at certain points, and this is where we have to come back to what God himself has said. He said it in the Old Testament. He said it again in the New Testament. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Your sin will not push me away. Your stupidity will not push me away. Your fear will not push me away. So move forward as if God is going to be with you. Verses 7 through 8 are encouragement specifically from God's word. He says, be strong and courageous. Why? Because you have the word that has been given to you, God's revelation of himself, his ways, his intentions, his purposes, his mission, his vision, all of that has been given. And look at the strategy that he gives to Joshua in order for Joshua to experience prosperity and success. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it, and then you're going to make your way prosperous and successful. Here is the book of the law. Keep in mind, it was just the first five books that he had at that point. There was nothing else other than those first five books. Here is the first five books of the law. Joshua, I want you to meditate on it day and night. I want you to think about it. I want you to, to memorize it, meditate on it, regurgitate it. Think about who I am and what it is that I have done. Remember my actions from the past. You can accurately predict my actions in the future. I mean, not the specifics, but that I will be faithful again in there. Meditate on this book of the law because your feelings will be fickle. But my word needs to come to your mind. So meditate on my word and move forward in life in spite of the way that you feel. Feelings are important. They matter. God cares about them. Don't dismiss feelings. But don't, don't only move forward when you feel like you've got the courage to move forward. Move forward when God calls you to move forward because God has said move forward and he will be faithful. Finally, in verse 9, we get Joshua rather gets encouragement from God's command. Have I not commanded you? In case you haven't heard this yet, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He is not saying remove all fear. Again, what he is saying is don't let fear grip you to the point where you don't do what I've asked you to do. Verse 10. 
Joshua, in case you didn't hear it, be strong and courageous because I'm with you. As we make our way through this series, I think it would be wise for you to ask three questions in each and every sermon. Number one, is there a command in here for me to obey? Is there a command somewhere in here that the Lord is pressing on your heart for you to obey? Second question is, is there an example for me to follow? Is there a specific example that you look at, a model that maybe somebody put, somebody put forward that the Lord is laying on your heart? I think God's calling me to do this as well. Is there a command to obey? Is there an example to follow? And then finally, is there a principle for me to apply? What principle is God calling you to put into practice as a result of his word being taught to you? My friends, we're going to hear a lot about what this kingdom is going to do. We'll keep moving our, making our way through um, this chapter, but I want to close my time um, with just drawing your attention to this um, simple um, truth. Moses is associated with the law. He's the one that God gave the law to. And Moses was incapable of moving the people into the promised land. The law was insufficient to do what God had asked the people to do. It served its role, but, but Moses never entered the promised land. The law cannot get us in there. Joshua, whose name means God saves. That once we get to the Greek language, the name Joshua is translated Jesus. It takes a savior to move the people from slavery into the promised land, into the land of blessing, of obedience, etc., where the kingdom of God has expanded. The kingdom expands numerically and it expands functionally. When I say promised land, don't just think heaven. Think moving into the place that God designed his people to live. The law served its role, but, but Joshua, the Savior, small s in there, was needed for the people. Folks, what I want to challenge us to think through is this. You and I are privileged right now to live in a day and age in which we are serving the Lord. The work is not yet done. There is more time before Jesus returns. He has sent us on a mission. And he sent us on a mission to go into a land that is filled with a bunch of people that seem to have more warrior-like qualities than we do. And he has called us to go in and to expand that kingdom and to get that gospel message out as much as we possibly can. And most of us feel as though we're those that sit back in slavery. We know what it's like to be enslaved, but we don't know what it's like to be warriors. And Paul reminds us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And the warlike nature that we must make as a group of people is not against the lost world. The war that we've got to make in order that others can live in peace is a war against the evil one. And we do that by hitting our knees. So when you see all the evil deeds of your kid or of your sibling or of your parent or of your neighbor or of your coach or coworker, whoever it may be, don't get mad at them. Get mad at the devil and hit your knees and pray that God would give you the courage to do whatever it is that he is calling you to do.